little seed hold the answer to big issues of our times, like disease, hunger, poverty, and climate change? Dr. Vandana Shiva is a world-renowned scholar and tireless crusader for economic, food, and gender justice. When we eat, we become part of the earth, because food is the currency that relates us to everything else. She envisions two distinct futures for food and farming. One leads to a dead planet, caused by the spread of poisons and chemical monocultures. In this paradigm, people are dying from diseases caused by nutritionally empty food, toxic industrial foods, and climate havoc wiping out conditions for human life on Earth. The second future leads to the rejuvenation of the planet through the rejuvenation of biodiversity, soils, water, diverse small farms providing a living diet of healthy, fresh, ecologically sound food for all. The time is now ripe for us to not make fragmented choices in an interconnected world. We've got to make interconnected choices with full conscience. 30 years ago, Dr. Shiva founded a women-led movement to defend the seed and food sovereignty of small farmers. This movement, Navdanya, promotes a new agricultural and economic paradigm, a culture of food for health where ecological responsibility and economic justice are valued more than extractive food production systems that hurt people and the planet. Now my conversation with Dr. Vandana Shiva. So your nonprofit, Navdanya, has for 30 years been helping to teach farmers to move away from this model of chemical agriculture and restore biodiversity by saving seeds. So I'm, I want to talk to you a little bit about what was the origins of this chemical agriculture? The origins of chemicals that are now the agrichemicals, they're also called toxic chemicals, they're also by the industry called plant protection chemicals, have their origins in war. This has been mentioned by Rachel Carson in a brilliant book, Silent Spring. Mm-hmm. It's been mentioned by Albert Howard, who is called the founder of organic farming, in his book, the Agricultural Testament, where these amazing scientists have said, corporations that got used to selling chemicals for warfare, then remolded these chemicals to make them inputs for agriculture. Hmm. The original use of chemicals was as poison gas, as xylon B, to kill people in concentration camps in Hitler's Germany. Mm -hmm. These chemicals, after the wars, became the basis of chemical farming industrial agriculture. And if today industrial agriculture is causing the level of harm it is, it's because we are dealing with war technologies whose singular objective is extermination of life. And so they just kind of repackaged the same chemicals and started selling them as an agricultural product? No, they derived new chemicals, Uh but the basic techniques that you need chemicals that can kill people were evolved then. We've had thousands and thousands and thousands of chemicals Mm -hmm. evolved since then Mm -hmm. by the group of companies that during the war were a cartel called IG Farben. These were tried at the Nuremberg trials, which gave the entire foundation of human rights. So the basis of these companies, the the origin of these chemical chemical companies. companies with only one purpose, how to make chemicals to kill. The interesting thing is while the wars were going on, 
and the Nazis were on one side and the Allied forces were on the other, the corporations of the United States and the IG Farben were acting as one. So really? even though the, the, the countries were at war. Were at war. So Dow DuPont had partnerships with IG Farben. Mm -hmm. Standard Oil had partnerships with IG Farben. Monsanto and Bayer, Bayer. Yeah. Monsanto and Bayer had a company called Mobay. And so they've merged again. But they were merged even during the wars. Mm. Um, so this cartel, in a way, has continued. And I call it the poison cartel. Because people, someone is fighting glyphosate for cancer. Someone is fighting neonicotides. Someone else is fighting another toxic. But there are thousands and thousands and thousands of chemicals. And while it is absolutely necessary that we go after the science of each chemical to understand the harm they do, that lawyers must do their work thoroughly in understanding and exposing this harm. As movements, as citizens, we need to know there's a group of companies, I call them the poison cartel, whose expertise is in making poisons that kill They function like a cartel because they function as one, and they are literally four now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they had said they would be five, but they're four. Mm -hmm. and, um, and basically, we have to move towards an agriculture and a food system that is free, both of the poisons that are harming us, but also that is free of the kind of control these giants have on our governments and constantly deregulating. Right. regulatory agencies. I mean, look at the deregulation going on in the Environment Protection Agency. Well, not only deregulation, but we're actually, in some ways, some of these crops are being subsidized, the crops that are grown with these chemicals in this country, right? So what we're told as the public is that we need these chemicals, we need these genetically modified foods that were created kind of alongside these chemicals, We need them in order to feed the world's growing population. That's what we're told. So can you share a little bit about how genetically modified foods are connected to this whole chemical agriculture, this whole trend? I started Navdanya as a result of being invited to a meeting on the new biotechnologies, which are the technologies used to create GMOs. And uh, at this meeting, the old chemical companies was saying, we aren't making enough money, we need to make more. And we need to use the new recombinant DNA technologies, which had been banned by the scientists who evolved these tools of recombinant DNA in a conference in Nasilomar in California in 1972. They said, we don't understand the consequences of what we are doing. So we'll stop this research. But the tools were out, and then... Initially, the venture capital firms and later the big poison cartel picked up these tools. And at this meeting in 1987, which was called Laws of Life, it was in Geneva and a small retreat center in Beaujave in France, they said, we need to do genetic engineering and release GMOs, as they're called, genetically modified organisms, in order to claim patents on seed. A patent is granted for an invention. So in effect, they were saying, now we'll claim seed as I mentioned, mm -hmm. in order to prevent farmers from having their own seed, so they would buy the seed every year and pay royalty. In the United States, farmers are paying $10 billion excess money 
just as technology fees and royalties for seeds, which are GMO seeds. Mm-hmm. If you look at what are the GMOs we have, when in the 80s and 90s, I used to have debates. They used to say, we'll grow food on the moon, we'll grow food in the Sahara, we'll grow food on toxic dumps. We can do anything under the world. But we only have two applications, largely in four crops. The two applications are either putting a gene into a plant that makes the plant a pesticide-producing plant in itself. These are the BT technologies. There's a second family of technologies which makes a plant resistant to herbicides and weedicides like Roundup and glyphosate. Uh As a result of the introduction of Roundup-ready crops, as they're called, by Monsanto in the 90s in the United States of America, the use of Roundup and glyphosate has shot up 15-fold. So these genetically modified crops, these genetically modified seeds, were actually designed to either have the chemical spliced into the gene of the plant itself or create a plant that could withstand higher levels of chemicals without killing the plant. Exactly. In fact, the approval for the Bt crops into which the pesticide-producing trait has been introduced, it was approved in the United States as a pesticide. And so what is the impact of this on human health? If we go back to the origins of the chemicals, and we realize they were designed to kill humans, we shouldn't be surprised that there is human harm. Recently, two big films have come out in the United States. One is called Dark Waters, about the chemicals used by DuPont. And then it was proven that it causes cancer. The genetically modified foods No, it wasn't. It was chemicals used by the companies cause cancer. Which are going to be higher. We should not separate. No GMO exists by itself. There's no GMO that is sold as a GMO. A GMO is sold by chemical companies to sell more chemicals. Aha, okay. And uh, even in the pesticide resistance plants, they sell more pesticides because it doesn't work to control pests. It leads to emergence of resistance, and you have super pests, and you spray more pesticides. So actually GMOs are vehicles for selling more chemicals and having monopoly on seed. You get a double income. And you get a constantly increasing income. The chemical companies do. All GMOs are owned by chemical companies. Okay. The four giants, which are now the merger of Bayer with Monsanto, Dow with DuPont, Syngenta, which was already a merger of Sibagaigi, Sandoz, AstraZeneca, has now was merged with ChemChina. And then there's BFS. So these four giants control all the agrochemicals, 70% of the market, and they control 60% of the world seeds, and their aim was controlling 100% of the world seed, and that's what they had wanted to do by the year 2000. That's what I took a pledge. I'm going to save seeds, to keep seeds free. And if today we have seed banks and seed libraries all over, and people turning to native seeds as a way of growing their food, we have been able to prevent the absolute monopoly of the poison cartel on the biodiversity of this planet and our food systems. So the human health impact is related to the GMO package, which is a chemical package. You never have a Roundup-ready crop by itself. You have a Roundup-ready crop to spray more herbicide. The herbicide is glyphosate. It was known to be a carcinogen 
by Monsanto in 1980s, even before it was commercialized uh, as the Roundup Ready crop. There are now 100,000 cases in the United States of cancer victims who are bring, bringing Bayer and Monsanto to court. In the first four cases, Bayer lost in rulings $4 billion, but in market value $63 billion, which was the value of what they had purchased Monsanto. With. So why is this still being allowed? If it's, if it's so detrimental to human health and been shown to cause cancer, why are these not being pulled from the market? Because my understanding is in many parts of the world, the UK, several countries in Europe, um, India even, their genetically modified foods aren't allowed in those countries. So why do they continue to be sold in the United States freely? Well, the uh, United States is exceptional in the fact that not only is most of its agriculture now GMO, largely GMO corn and soya, most of it which goes to biofuel and animal feed and is not feeding anybody, uh, 90% is biofuel and animal feed. Um, but what is worse is that there are hundreds of countries that have mandatory labeling laws for labeling GMOs. Right. Because this was part of a biosafety regulation that we created. So US that you know what you're eating. And choose what you're eating. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, it's been prevented. There were four states, California, Washington, Colorado, and Oregon, that had ballot initiatives on this. And the ballot was destroyed by pouring too much money by the chemical companies. Their to, advertising campaigns. Yeah, and, and misleading people. Mm -hmm. The state of Vermont actually passed a legislation on GMO labeling. This was then undone by the Congress through what was called the Dark Act, the denial to Americans of the right to know. So not only do you have GMOs all over the place, the right to know and right to choose has been taken away, which to me is the most foundational right in a democracy. Most of the world actually is GMO-free, and sadly, it's the trade agreements that are used to force countries to have GMOs. And so you're saying in Vermont, the people voted to have labeling laws, yes. and then the government said, sorry, you no, don't the, have the right the, to know? The government of Vermont, the legislature passed it. Passed it. The U.S. Congress had a preemptive law passed to say states cannot make their decision, even though the United States is a federal structure. And these decisions should be at the state level. And so decisions about human health should be sovereign decisions, not just of a, a region and a state. They should be sovereign decisions of counties and cities. And according to our Congress, people don't have the right to know whether they're eating a genetically modified food or not. Yeah, and that, that's why it was called the Dark Act, the denial to the Americans of the right to know. Mm -hmm. And it's around food that uh, American citizens have the worst erosion of democracy. Now, normally when you know something has caused harm, it's a regulatory agency that's, that's the ban. Right. In the case of the United States, GMOs have never been regulated. Never. There is no law to regulate them. I was part of the United Nations expert group to write the global biosafety laws. The only country that hasn't implemented biosafety is the impact of GMOs on the environment and health. Mm -hmm. Only country that has not implemented biosafety laws is the United States. Why is that? To protect the industry. Of course. 
And that, I mean, the big films that are now coming out are showing how captive the regulatory agencies have become to the industry. This is what Rachel Carson was writing about. And years later, this is still what citizens are having to deal with. So if these foods are, for all intents and purposes, ubiquitous in the United States, what can people do to protect themselves and make sure that they're not eating genetically modified foods? So it's not the case that all crops are GMO. It's mainly corn. It's mainly soya, a bit of alpha alpha. So the way to avoid GMO food is go organic, is to work with farmers to create CSAs that supply diverse foods. And what's a CSA? Just for uh, listeners who may not be familiar Community-supported agriculture, which puts eaters directly in contact with the farmers who grow their food. Mm-hmm. Because we are dealing with a triple crisis right now. We are dealing with a crisis, planetary crisis, that species are disappearing. And every serious scientist has recognized that it's the chemicals of agriculture that is driving the monarch to extinction. The roundup is what's killing the plants on which the monarch feeds and nests. The monarch butterflies. And just a few days ago, two people who were protecting the monarch in Mexico have been killed because they're also defending the ecosystem from agribusiness and the expansion of avocado plantations is destroying the forests. And they've killed the two monarch butterfly keepers. So we are talking about... They were killed by chemicals or they were killed... They were They, they were murdered. They uh-huh. were murdered by the cartel. So, you know, a lot of Americans think, oh, if I just shift to avocado, I'll have a healthy diet. But if your avocado is coming from far away at the cost of killing forests... If you're so, if your impossible burger is coming, it might be plant-based, but if it's based on GMOs or if it's based on imported GMOs where soya bean plantations are leading to the burning of the Amazon and the killing of indigenous people, it is not bringing health to the planet and it's not bringing health to you because for those who say there's no evidence of harm, Because chemicals and GMOs go together, the evidence of harm on glyphosate has already been established by the WHO, which said Roundup glyphosate is a carcinogen. It was established when rapid kidney failure started in uh, Sri Lanka, and the government was very surprised. And when the doctors did a detailed epidemiological study, they found it's the areas around rice cultivation where Roundup was being used to kill the plants and weeds around the paddy fields, that uh, the uh, cases of kidney failure were very high. I think about 20,000 people died. And uh, and then the government banned. Do you think this, was it attributed to farming with these chemicals and being exposed in that way, or just the eating of the crops? That It's both, because yeah. you cannot separate... When you're spraying poisons, and poisons get sprayed, Mm -hmm. and sadly in the United States, they get sprayed by these giant machines, and now they're talking about farming without farmers, where big drones will spray from the skies. So the poisons enter the ecosystem, they poison your body if you're a worker, but they poison you as an eater. Mm. And they're in the food system, they're everywhere, they're in the groundwater. So even if you're eating organic food, 
you could still be exposed to these chemicals. Absolutely, because uh, it could come from the groundwater. It could come from drift from your neighbor. That's why we have to create organic zones. That's why two years ago in Navdanya, we started the movement for poison-free food and farming to create regions that are poison-free. Sikkim, the state in northern India, made itself 100% chemical-free. I work with seven states in India that are moving towards organic. We're working with movements and networks here in California for a poison-free California, both for health reasons as well as reasons for protecting diverse species and protecting farm workers. And speaking of this diversity of species in terms of microorganisms in the soil, say you've, you've made the connection between this and the health of our microbiome, which we're learning more and more that that's really a, a foundation for human health. So can you share how these two things are connected? How is yeah. the health of our microbiome connected to the health of the soil? Yeah. So healthy soils have billions of soil organisms. These soil organisms are producing nourishment, amazing nutrition, which is then being taken up by the plants. And the, in, there's enough research that shows that in areas where chemical farming is practiced in industrial agriculture has grown, cr crops have lost nine, 60 to 70% of their nutrition. So we are growing and trading in nutritionally empty toxic commodities. These trace elements and phenols and phytochemicals is what plants have if you grow them organically in organic soils, which are living soils. When you eat these plants, and you eat biodiversity of plants because organic farming gets rid of chemicals, but you still have to control pests. How do you control pests? You grow diversity of plants, which then create diversity of insects, which control the pest amongst themselves. How do you control weeds? You grow diversity of plants, which create cover crops. That's how you control weeds. So biodiversity is not just necessary to avoid chemicals. Those biodiversity of crops, as our work in Navdani has shown, when we measure nutrition per acre rather than yield, we can grow enough nourishment to feed two times India's population, because I'm from India, this is the work I do in detail, but I know we can feed two times the world's population with nourishment, which means we can release more land for other species. We can, and what does that mean? We're, we're measuring it in terms of nutrition rather than yield. So yield only measures the commodity that leaves the farm without looking at what state did it leave the soil in? What state did it leave the farmer in? What's the net economy of a farmer? Because farmer's distress now is so huge. Mm -hmm. Yield only measures how much does your grain weigh. Mm -hmm. It doesn't measure how much nutrition the grain has. Does it have enough proteins? Does it have enough uh, vitamin A? Does it have enough uh, iron? All these are built into our, our foods. If we nourish the, the soil, our foods have the nutrition in them. When we measure nutrition... We measure what is in the food, but we also measure the health of the soil. And our soils now have 160 times more beneficial bacteria and fungi, which create the health of the soil. But connecting this biodiversity of the soil and biodiversity of the plants that make the biodiversity of the soil to the fact that we are biodiverse. We are not isolated, insulated 
cells separated from the rest, our gut microbiome is trillions of microbes. It's like a forest within us. Mm -hmm. And each of these microbes needs a different diet. I see. And these different diets then allow the different microbes to do their work to produce the enzymes that then produce the different chemicals that keep the metabolic system going, including the neurotransmitters that keep a healthy brain. Why is there an epidemic of neurological problems in America? Because so much... Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, autism. According to the Center for Disease Control, the graph for autism is exploding like this. The last time I looked, it was one in 30 kids. And on that basis, one in two children in a few decades will be autistic. And you think this is related to declining health of the human microbiome? It's not what I think. It's what the scientists are also confirming. Because the way a glyphosate kills plants is it ruptures what is called the shikimate pathway, a metabolic pathway. Kills it and therefore the plant dies. Monsanto kept saying it can't affect human cells. And they do little tests with human cells. But we are not human cells. We are the microbe within us. Large numbers of the microbes have the shikimate pathway in our gut. So what that we decide is doing to plants outside, it's doing to bacteria in our gut. It is destroying the ability of our gut to produce the neurotransmitters. It's not an accident that scientists are talking about the gut as our second brain. Right, because so many neurotransmitters are actually produced in the gut. That We don't eat neurotransmitters in our food. But if we eat the right food in the right way, free of chemicals, our microbe is able to do the work to produce the neurotransmitter. And it's important to have enough variety of different kinds of plant foods in order to absolutely That's why to say plant-based and make an impossible burger is a very wrong way to think. Mm -hmm. If you think of the gut microbiome and if you think of the health of the soil, and the health of the soil and our health is connected in one health through biodiversity... We cannot avoid biodiversity to have healthy soils. We cannot avoid biodiversity in our diet to have a healthy gut. Mm. And so how is this all connected to climate change? Because you've said that, you know, some of the work you do is shifting to local systems and community-based agriculture. And you've said that this allows us to grow more food, which you've described, and protect the pollinators And you've also said it can actually help solve the climate crisis. So how does shifting to local systems and community-based agriculture do this? In 2009, before the Copenhagen Climate Summit, I started to write my book called Soil Not Oil because I realized the way the categories in the IPCC were managed, they addressed agriculture without saying agriculture. So they talked about land use change and deforestation. But they didn't mention it's to grow GMO soya in the Amazon. They talked about um, industry and transport without showing that most of what's getting transported is food moving thousands of miles. So when you add all those categories, the amount of emissions that come from an industrial globalized system that's based on fossil fuels and chemicals is about 50% of the problem. Yet, if you do organic farming, you do biodiverse farming, You pull that extra carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. You pull that extra nitrogen, which is a horrible greenhouse gas, 300 times more deadly than carbon dioxide. You take it back through nitrogen-fixing crops. 
put it in the soil. Your soils are now more fertile. You're growing diversity, so more pollinators have food. And you're able to reverse the buildup of emissions by absorbing emissions through the living cycle of plants and putting it back in the soil. This has been established to be the case. That's why regenerative agriculture has become the way people talk about this kind of farming because we are regenerating the soil to solve the climate problem. And so if you have the choice between purchasing an organic food that was grown in another country and had to be shipped away, like, for example, many times of the year, during certain times of the year here in California, if you want to get a blue, an organic blueberry or an organic apple, it'll be shipped from Chile. And if otherwise, you can buy a conventional one. So what, what, how, do you, how would you suggest people weigh the benefits versus the costs of eating organic, even if it has to be shipped from far away, versus eating local, even though it might not be organic? Well, you know, I come from the part of the world that is the world that supplies food for consumer demands in the North. And I watch how it leaves famine behind, how it leaves farmers without livelihoods behind. So every time someone thinks about, do I eat local or organic, the first is to give up that either-or choice, because I'm a quantum theorist, and you don't have either-or in quantum theory. You have an. A particle can have a spin-up or a spin-down. It can have both at the same time with different probabilities. But the most important point is when you eat, it is very important to remember that when we eat, we become part of the earth because food is the currency that relates us to everything else. When we eat, we are connecting to other people somewhere. And I would say for every conscious eater, you have to think of what is it doing to the earth and other beings. So don't eat chemicals so you can protect the bees and pollinators and monarch butterfly. And you don't eat long distance so you can reduce the emissions, but the chemicals also have their own emissions. You want to eat food grown sustainably, but you want to eat food grown with justice. So the time is now ripe for us to not make fragmented choices in an interconnected world. We've got to make interconnected choices with full conscience. And what does that mean for someone who's at the market and trying to decide, let's say someone's at the farmer's market, like what kind of questions can they ask the grower if it's not labeled certified organic to know whether or not this is a good idea to purchase? First is choose biodiverse. Second, choose organic. Third, choose food as close to your home as possible. And fourth is if you can grow some of it, grow it yourself. Mm. And biodiverse, you're saying like grow from a farm that's growing a variety of crops, not no, just one. eat. Eat a variety. Okay. Your gut microbiome is longing for variety. Beautiful. Beautiful. For the people who want to read, we have a book called Annam, which is Food for Health. It is being produced by a publisher called Acres USA. Not a very effective distributor, but if you look for it, I'm sure you can find it. And then there's a manifesto on food for health that can be downloaded for free from a website of Navdanya International. And for those who want to continue to work with Navdanya in India, we offer courses on these things. You can go to navdanya.org. And those who want to continue to support this work, 
contribute to Friends of Navdanya in the United States. Well, thank you for the incredible work you're doing around the world. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Visit us online at futurefood.fm. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and put the power to save the planet on your plate and on your playlist. I'm Ivy Juiva. Future of Food is produced by Lee Schneider. Music by Epidemic Sound. We're part of the Future X Podcast Network. <laughs>